I am Tiernan Ray, and you are listening to the Technology Letter Podcast for Sunday, November 13th, 2022. It was a good week for earnings and a very solid week for stocks, helped by that lower-than-expected inflation data on Thursday. The NASDAQ closed up 8% for the week to make it a 3% gain month-to-date for November. The S&P up 6% for the week and 3% month-to-date. The TL20, the Technology Letter 20 list of 20 great companies to consider, closed up 8% for the week and 6% month-to-date. The TL20 is having a much better November than it had October. Uh, At this point, from its inauguration in mid-July, the TL20 is down 5%, uh, way up from the trough at the end of October. So, uh, fingers crossed, uh, this is pulling away from the trough definitively and decisively. This was um, a good earnings week for a couple of TL20 names, Digital Ocean and Coherent. Coherent soared 21% for the week, and DigitalOcean ended up the week 8% or so. Coherent, you may recall, was originally 2.6, that is I-I-V-I, a fiber optic component maker. Earlier this year, they bought Coherent, a maker of lasers, and this quarter they just reported was the first quarter in which they had completed the integration of Coherent, and they say it's going well. I have a sense that one of the things that may be helping Coherent going forward is that we're in the midst of a 400 gigabit per second networking expansion. 400 gig, as it's called, is the fastest speed currently available in fiber optic data networks. And parties who are selling the gear to do this, such as Arista Networks, which has been on a real roll lately, have said this is as big a wave of upgrades for data centers as we saw back around 2016, 2017. And there was a kind of um, a staggered effect there. You saw a lot of sales of components, meaning the lasers, the uh, passive fiber optic components that couple lasers into the fiber have first a, a big surge, as I recall, around 2016, 2017. And then you saw uh, the gear for Arista have its own surge once that those components were integrated. All of this to make data centers uh, faster and faster as companies build these gigantic artificial intelligence networks, Meta tries to build the metaverse or whatever. So this period of uh, upgrade of fiber optic speeds may be beneficial to coherent going forward as it has been so far to Arista. I talked with DigitalOcean's CEO, Yancy Spruill, following that company's successful earnings report. And um, he told me that there's a lot of focus that he would like to place on the strategic issues of the company, things such as M&A, to diversify its product offerings, but that it's hard right now to talk about that because the street is so fixated on talking about the risk of recession. Spruill said to me, quote, we made some major strategic actions last quarter, the street is trying to look through that and say, well, absent that, that something's different in the underlying business. DigitalOcean is a company that sells a kind of competitor to Amazon AWS cloud computing services. It's targeted at small and medium businesses, and it's meant to save them a lot of money on the cost of public cloud computing. Uh, One of the issues is that there's a sense that small and medium businesses must be particularly vulnerable to the risk of recession. 
Uh, Sproul told me, quote, there's a lot of skepticism about the durability and resiliency in this type of environment of those small and medium businesses. He says that small and medium businesses are misunderstood. Quote, we have looked at historical patterns in other recessions, he told me. Quote, what we see is that small and medium businesses perform similar to enterprises. As a cohort, Sproul says, they, quote, tend to be like cable and utilities. They tend to be pretty stable. That's the history of ours, meaning our cohort. So uh, CEOs trying to tell the street to look past worries about recession and look to the fundamental qualities of the business that endure. Uh, this week it kind of worked for DigitalOcean. Uh, we'll see if, if the street will um, stick with that positive outlook going forward. I also had an interesting conversation uh, in the software field with a gentleman named Rick McConnell, who is the CEO of a company called Dynatrace. Dynatrace is in a field that's variously known as DevSecOps, which is a sort of a, a, a conglomeration of developer for software developer, security for computer security, and operations for IT operations. It also goes by the rubric observability. And the whole idea here is tools that IT and the developers can use to monitor how their applications are doing. Uh, McConnell, the CEO, tells me that um, things are getting increasingly complicated as more and more code, more applications are put in public cloud facilities such as Amazon, AWS, because it's then um, at a remove from the traditional monitoring capabilities of IT. It, it's harder to see what's going on in the public cloud remotely by these enterprises that are using public cloud. And he thinks that things are getting worse now um, and that, in fact, things are aggravated by the potential uh, for recession because uh, it's harder to hire people, right, to, uh, to deal with these kinds of software monitoring issues. Um, so he predicts that there's a real crisis coming for companies, and his hope is that that makes his software even more valuable in a recession and therefore can you know, be, be approved, line-itemed by management. Uh, McConnell said to me, quote, companies are getting hordes of customer calls saying, oh my God, your software is down. I can't make a bank transfer. I can't buy your product, whatever it might be. Uh, describing the kinds of crises these enterprises face with the cloud. Quote, my hypothesis, says McConnell, is that the problem is getting not modestly worse, it's getting much worse. Because I can't find the labor, it's getting harder to find the problem in the software, he offers. He says, quote, it's going to get to a precipice where they can't operate effectively. So he's saying in public cloud computing, there's a sort of existential threat. Some companies will handle it well, others won't. And he's hoping that the ones who buy his software will be the ones that come out on top. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, with some of the performance this week, the TL20 names, of the 20 names, 13 of them are in the green since the group was inaugurated on July 15th. So it's been about three months now. We've got 13 of 20 names are in the green, led by Arista Networks. Uh, and uh, the worst, unfortunately, despite this week's big gain, the worst so far is coherent, down 21%. Uh, the other one that's way down, the second worst of the group, is Tesla, down about 18% since it was picked. I spent some time talking about Tesla this week. It's become kind of uh, an industry 
to be extremely frustrated with Elon Musk. Uh, some people don't like that he's destroying Twitter, which they love. And some people don't like that he's destroying Tesla, <laughs> in their view. Um, he has been selling a lot of shares of stock uh, that he owns in Tesla for months now to fund his purchase of Twitter. And that is diluting the value of Tesla stock. It's, it's hampering the price. Uh, an analyst who had formerly defended Elon Musk, Dan Ives, with Wedbush, this me week uh, s said that he was taking Tesla stock off his quote-unquote best ideas stock list. I've said Musk has succeeded where the bears had failed in quote crushing Tesla stock. Ives says this is the worst time to be selling massive amounts of stock in the market because Tesla's under a bit of a cloud because in their latest report deliveries of vehicles came up short. And so he argues the company's in the penalty box until January, until the next report, to see if they can turn around the pace of deliveries. And so the last thing the company needs is uh, Musk selling, dumping his stock, and at the same time dis facing distraction by trying to run yet another company. He's got Tesla, he's got SpaceX, the space exploration venture, and now he's going to be re reinventing Twitter. Um, which could be a massive potential distraction for him. Uh, my argument in this piece this week is to st sort of step away from obsessing over Musk. Uh, as far as I could tell, I have not seen a fundamental change in Tesla's profile as a highly successful car maker whose stock was and is reasonably valued. Uh, the competition I is really nowhere. Uh, Rivian Automotive, Lucid Group, Faraday Future, these are three of the uh, most important young contenders to Tesla. They're still trying to reach volume production. It took Tesla years to reach volume production. These companies have the benefit of Tesla's learning curve. They're starting at a better point in time. The industry of semiconductors and other components to support what they're doing is more developed than when um, Tesla was trying to build the Model S and the Model 3. However, these companies are missing quarter after quarter of expectations, and they're still trying to get to volume production. So the competition is nowhere near touching Tesla at this point. Uh, and I think that's true, too, of GM and Ford and Jaguar and Volvo and Daimler Chrysler. I think the thing to focus on is the company Tesla is highly successful. The one thing that does give me pause is a series of investigations into accidents linked to the self-driving software that Tesla has implemented. There's now a Justice Department criminal investigation over claims the company's electric vehicle can drive themselves, Qua claims that may not hold up uh, to scrutiny. My research into artificial intelligence, which is supposed to be the foundation of self-driving vehicles, suggests that yes, in fact, um, this stuff is not really ready for prime time amongst any of the car companies, any of the developers, and there's serious question about how soon it will be. And so uh, it's quite possible that uh, self-driving software was pushed by Musk and pushed by the company too early in the market. I don't know that that's the case, but it's possible. So these investigations are really something to keep an eye on uh, as far as Tesla. Uh, the biggest gainers of the week uh, were uh, within the TL20 were two chip equipment stocks, ASML Holding and Applied Materials. ASML is uh, dominates uh, special tools for photolithographic rendering of chip circuitry. Uh, that stock closing up 23% for the week and applied materials up 21% for the week. And 
maybe this is the start of the general turnaround for semiconductor stocks and semiconductor equipment stocks. I note that LAM research was also up sharply uh, this past week, and um, analog devices as well. NVIDIA had a good week as well. Micron technology, not bad. So um, maybe this is a broad-based turnaround for the chip stocks, I hope, after they had been really uh, one of the groups the most under pressure. Within earnings this past week, I, I, the one that kind of was the most interesting to me uh, of all of the ones that I looked at was a company called Upstart Holding. Uh, Upstart Holding is a company that went public in December of 2020, and I've been very skeptical since the beginning. Upstart's a company that develops software that uses artificial intelligence to make a more rational risk assessment of borrowers, the purpose being to convince banks to extend loans more broadly, extend loans to people who might not have ever been able to be, to be given a loan because the existing, the traditional risk models considered them um, too great a risk. Uh, and so this company was hoping to revolutionize lending. Well, of course, what happened is through Q4 of last year, through uh, the end of 2021, uh, they had five quarters of r rapidly rising lending by their bank partners. They sell their software to banks, banks issue, write the loans, and then a syndicate of credit investors buy the IOU that the bank issues. This is this cycle that goes on of uh, personal lending that is was sort of um, given a new uh, incentive by upstart arriving and saying we're going to make the risk models much better. Things fell apart after uh, the fourth quarter of last year, a bit on the decline, and um, it's suddenly harder to, uh, to, to lend to people basically because rising rates make loans less attractive for borrowers. So um, the company's CEO and co-founder David Girouard during the company's conference call this week did in fact say, quote, we assume the worst is in front of us as far as the credit market. However, he also said that the company's AI is getting better and better. Its AI models, that is the hypothesis about how credit will function, defaults and such, is getting better and better all the time. This is the same kind of things the company has been saying since the beginning, very enthusiastic with very little detail. Um, one of the most amazing statements uh, on the call and one of the most amazing instances of sort of putting a positive spin on things that I've heard in a long time was Euroward telling analysts that, quote, contraction in lending volume in a time of rising rates and elevated consumer risk is a feature of our platform, not a bug, close quote. This is a kind of a reference to an old programmer joke. If you don't like the way a piece of software works, well, you know, it's not that it's buggy. It's that it's, you don't understand that it's a feature that was designed in. Um, this is a little bit much. The company has not so far demonstrated that it's predicting anything. They are claiming to be able to predict things uh, as their models get stronger and stronger, but it's all very vague. Um, they were asked by one analyst, Arvin Ramnani with Piper Sandler, uh, asked the company's uh, CFO if he could say uh, what, what might be coming down the road. Quote, what are some of the downside scenarios? Like, I mean, if macro gets a lot worse, would you expect like kind of further deterioration in your business just given sort of the strong exposure you'll have to the macro? And the response from the company's CFO Sanjay Data was to say, quote, look, any business looking to the future of the economy 
there are downside scenarios, unquote. Well, that's probably true, but that's probably also not AI. Uh, I think that the jury's still out on this company because I think that um, nothing they've offered so far really proves that they have a, a unique and special AI secret sauce for lending. Uh, and at this point, certainly interest in the stock has uh, cooled quite a bit. Um, I've been looking a bunch lately at what happened during the Great Recession, January 2008 to June 2009, 18 months. It was the longest a contraction in the economy, the U.S. economy, since World War II. And this week I took a look at specifically what's going on with FANG, uh, what happened with FANG, I should say, the largest companies, uh, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, were around at the time. Um, Meta, or Facebook, was not yet public, didn't come public until 2012. So uh, these four, and then I also lumped in NVIDIA because these days, NVIDIA is one of the biggest companies in tech. It wasn't nearly as big back in 2008, but I thought it's interesting to go back and see what happened to NVIDIA as well. Well, it turns out if you track the price declines and gains from that eight, during that 18-month period, there were some sharp declines and some sharp gains, and the sharp gains started around November of 2008. Most, a lot of tech stocks bottomed in November 2008, about eight months in advance of the end of the recession before the broader market. The broader market, S&P and NASDAQ, really didn't bottom until uh, February, uh, January, February. So uh, this, this was an early sort of rally in tech stocks back then. And there were some uh, impressive gains. Alphabet rose 44% from November of 2008 through June of 2009. Amazon rose 96% from November to June. Apple, 54% from November to June. NVIDIA rose 51% November to June. And Microsoft, uh, the least impressive of the group, rose 18% from November to June. What was interesting to me was to think back to how these companies changed. I think it's there's a common sense that a recession can sometimes change industries that there are lasting effects that happen. Uh, I don't want to make too great a case here for an absolute correlation, but you notice some interesting things before and after recession. Alphabet was not Alphabet. Alphabet was Google. It was not this conglomerate of advertising plus special projects like Waymo, self-driving. It was just an online advertising company before recession. Uh, and then after recession, it developed this whole kind of conglomerate holding company structure. Amazon was a company that was profitable, but uh, minimally so, you know, pennies per share and earnings uh, each year before the recession. Uh, I think around 2008, during the Great Recession, it was still possible to make a case that um, it, it was not clear that Amazon's razor-thin margins were going to pay off huge investments in logistics. Amazon was not yet perceived as being the kind of incredible threat to Walmart that it has become uh, and the kind of dominant player in retail. So a transformation before and after recession for Amazon. Apple, remember the iPhone was introduced January of 2007 by Steve Jobs. It went on sale June of 2007. A year later after the introduction, January of 2008, recession hits. The iPhone was approaching the second version, which if I recall correctly, was the iPhone 3G. And 
it was by no means dominant in the phone market. BlackBerry was still the dominant handheld for enterprise corporate types. It was deeply entrenched in how enterprise IT managed fleets of devices for executives. And so there was a real question whether uh, the iPhone would ultimately play out well against BlackBerry. And remember, Motorola was still a big player. I can remember in, I think it was September of 2008, the depths of the Great Recession, Lehman Brothers was failing, Merrill Lynch was at risk of going under, and there was on a Monday on the cover of maybe it was the Wall Street Journal a picture of Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson looking very anxious. He had clasped to his ear his Motorola Razor phone. This was the, this was the cool gadget for important executives on the move. Uh, aside from BlackBerry, was the Motorola Razor. So Apple transformed from a company that Steve Jobs had brought back from the brink of death prior to recession to after recession becoming the iPhone company. It's a real interesting sort of dividing line there, I think. Again, not to force it too much. Microsoft um, was years away from Satya Nadella coming in, and this was a period in which Microsoft wandered in the wilderness. Hence, Microsoft's gain during the recession, uh, coming out of recession, was the weakest of all five of these companies. NVIDIA is interesting because I don't think it, it was really pegged to the recession, but uh, NVIDIA was a challenger uh, around the time of the recession. They were challenging uh, Intel's hold on the data center. They were not yet an AI company. It would take several years more until about 2015, 2016, that Wall Street started to look and say, NVIDIA is becoming synonymous with AI. It took several years. So it's, it wasn't the recession itself, but you can see an interesting change. Before recession, NVIDIA as a video game company, with a lot of interesting initiatives, but nothing um, that was changing its corporate profile uh, to some years, three, four, five years after the recession, NVIDIA becoming an AI company. And that was an amazing story that unfolded over many, many years. Looking ahead to this week, uh, we have some interesting earnings coming up again for TL20 stocks. Wednesday, NVIDIA will be reporting after the bell. And I'm excited I'm going to talk with Jensen Huang after that report. Uh, so you'll want to check out the posts to see that. And then Applied Materials will be reporting on Thursday after the closing bell, another important indicator for the health of the chip market. So please check it out. Thank you for checking out this podcast and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. <laughs>